Welcome to Boxes and Lines, a different kind of finance podcast from a different kind of stock exchange. Featuring IEX founder Ronan Ryan and Chief Market Policy Officer John Ramsey. Now here to give you the straight talk on how the markets really work. It's Ronan and JR. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. We have a special one for you guys today on today's episode. We have the second iteration of a popular Box and Lions takeover. Almost a year ago to the day, IEX's own Jamie Abrahamson is joined again by Andy Kaplan, previously a partner at Greenlight Capital and currently a founding partner at Freedom's Edge Cider, but most importantly, a founding father aficionado. Last year, Jamie and Andy got together to dive into the infamous story and the misconceptions of the relationship between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. They got together again to continue on with this story and dive into other aspects and peculiarities of the time. Jamie and Andy, take it away. Don't mess it up. <laughs> Hi, Andy. Hi, Andy Jamie. Andy Kaplan, welcome back. To remind everyone, Andy Kaplan, CEO and founder of Freedom's Edge Cider out of Maine. This is your second appearance on Boxes and Lines. It's an annual It's appearance. an annual appearance. Yeah. yeah. And recall our last topic was centered on the fact and fiction and history of Alexander Hamilton and the idea that perhaps what was remembered or what was displayed in the play or what we all talk about now is perhaps the least interesting version of what actually happened and what we got wrong and what it means and why we should care. Is that a good That's a great summary? synopsis of, what we, of where we started. <laughs> and this time... We're going to kind of expand that theme of symbols of the power of history and adapting it to modern conventions and needs and talk a little bit about some of the other founding fathers. Great. Okay. So let's jump right into it. Andy, should we talk about the power of symbols and how we got here and why we should care and what what this all means? So last year, for those of you who were just picking up, we talked a bit about the symbolism of Hamilton and how he'd been adopted by a new era for this idea of unification across the political spectrum. But this is not a new concept. Throughout our entire history, there have been these ideas that these the founding fathers were either adopted or left behind or, or, or shaped new purposes. And, and I think one of the things we might have started talking about last time would have been that, um, you know, in the 1920s, Hamilton got put on the $10 bill by... Andrew Mellon, the Treasury Secretary, who was a big Hamiltonian. And as Roosevelt came into power through the Great Depression, some of the arguments that uh, that Mellon and others like him had adopted to use, you know, the, using Hamilton and other founding fathers to symbolize the need for government to stay out of the way and be as small as possible and allow the the capitalists to kind of do their thing and, and to be kind of untrammeled to deliver great returns. Well, there was obviously a lot of questioning of, well, maybe that hadn't worked out so well because of the general conditions. Well, you know, it's great before you get in. I'm glad we've solved all this and that these questions aren't still. They, they never kept it, they never had to come up again. I'm glad we're still, not 100 years later, still asking ourselves these same questions because goodness, that would be. That would be mean we had no progress at all. Okay, so continue. So, so in, we're so questioning in, laissez-faire capitalism, yeah. And so then early 1930s, of course, a, a time of great questioning around the world and in many places, in, in Italy and Germany and, and Japan um, and other places, um, 
you know, fascist uh, dictators had overturned more or less, you know, legitimate democratic governments. And there was, you know, there were fascist elements in America as well. Then there was some fear that if the capitalist system continued to, you know, show such poor results and if, you know, a quarter of the country was out of work and whatnot, that there might not be a capitalist democratic system to save. And Roosevelt coming out of, um, you know, one of the patrician families of America, one of the wealthiest families right. in the country and early immigrants was a strong believer in capitalism, but also believe that sometimes you had to, um, you know, not kill the patient to save it, but change the perspective or change the narrative. Right. And so one of the ways that he chose to do that was trying to find symbols that were powerful and very different than the symbols that had predominated during the prior decades, you know, during the Gilded Age. Symbols and, and that could resonate 20s. this new version of capitalism that right. perhaps wasn't as laissez-faire. Mm-hmm. And one of them that they thought um, that they really recapture somebody who'd been in, you know, I don't want to say disrepute, but really had been lost a bit to history was Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson, especially in light of the Civil War right. and his role in having kind of passed the Nullification Acts, which were the you know precursors to the um, to the you know separatists of the, of the Confederacy, Roosevelt and his team actually thought there was a lot to the Jefferson myth that. Right. could be or should be brought back. And Jefferson not only was obviously one of the architects of the revolution, the writer of the Declaration of Independence and the, you know, a, you know, big believer in, you know, autonomy and the rights of man. And so they started this program to um, rehabilitate Jefferson in, in, in some, you know, symbolic ways. They, they put him on the nickel. You know, they've been, the nickel had been the, the buffalo nickel for people that were spending nickels in the 1920s. <laughs> so this was something they did. And, and, you know, Something you and I talked about, Jamie, at one point was that there was a lot of power in the Jefferson narrative, but in some ways it was obviously problematic. Jefferson, you know, was a, a slaveholder and, um, you know, was uh, an you know, architect of the idea of you, know, you could, you know, nullify and separate and, and secede from the republic if, right. if you didn't, you didn't want the federal government telling you what to do. You know, Roosevelt was aware of all that, but, you know, the political practicality of the fact that the Democratic Party um, needed Southern votes to prevail, um, right. you know, in, in that time meant that he was willing to make some compromises around, you know, what his personal ideals and beliefs might have been in order to present this figure that would be unifying to his coalition. And so Jefferson kind of warts and all was brought out and, you know, we have, we, we see him today very differently than the way that, that our forefathers a century ago might have seen Jefferson because of, because of those efforts. Interesting. So I guess the question becomes Jefferson was chosen, but perhaps he was the wrong choice yeah. or there could have been another choice. Well, or it, more- it's fascinating to think about, but as, as you right. look, as you look at the founding fathers, the three towering figures of the, of the early Republic, the constitutional era of the 1790s and early 1800s, Hamilton was one, Jefferson was two. The third and by far the most popular in his own day is somebody that's almost completely forgotten today. And that was Aaron Burr. So what made Burr toxic? Why why did this poor guy so get Burr, the worst billing? Burr, Burr had the misfortune of having his history told and written by his two greatest rivals uh, right. in that period, uh, Jefferson and Hamilton. And Hamilton's descendants wrote all sorts of histories and Jefferson left all sorts of histories that were you know written or rewritten to make the case that Burr was not someone with a with a 
a specific political agenda, but was simply a chameleon who had uh, his own interests at heart and was a bit of a demagogue in addition to being a, a Lothario. And, and by the, by the 1920s and 30s, Burr was a staple in these gothic romance novel type things. And Burr was inevitably this hero that would come in and, or anti-hero that would come and corrupt the young maiden. And, you right. know, there, there was a whole genre of fiction called Burr fiction That's around. Unbelievable. Around, around the fact that he was this, but, and, and I mean, nothing could be, if you know anything about the, the historical right. Burr, this not really, you know, Burr probably was the proto-feminist of this generation. Which is crazy. Yeah. And okay. we will get back to maybe, that. Maybe, maybe we will, but, but Burr is a figure just to kind of yeah let's quickly review for everyone who was Burr so, and so how did Burr was probably the first hero of the Revolutionary War in the Battle of Quebec uh, he was um, you know a colonel in the Revolutionary War and he was um, an early he was an anti-federalist so he was one of the strongest voices against the Constitution along with Thomas Jefferson frankly and he rose to the Senate at a young age he was a senator from New York and when political parties were shaping in the 1790s, Burr essentially created what became known as the, the, the Democratic Republican Party. He took what was a, a, a regional party. Um, you know, at that point, the Federalists were the Northern Party of, of business and, and commerce. And the South was the agrarian party of, right. um, of you know, Jefferson and, and Madison and, and Monroe and, and whatnot. But because the electoral votes were predominantly in the North, um, the Southern Party was doomed to be a, a regional party with just its own interests. Burr found that that he and his followers shared some of the interests of that Southern Democratic Republican Party, meaning that they favored small business over big, expanding the franchise, letting more people vote, you know, pro-immigration. But on the other hand, they didn't adopt the whole program. They didn't, they weren't pro-slavery, they were uh, they were strong they were strong central government not weak central government um, believers by that point. So Burr and his followers formed a coalition with Jefferson and Madison in the 1790s with the idea that maybe they could find their common ground and provide a, a, an opposition to at the time you know Washington and Adams and Hamilton who were you know, ascendant and you know forging a type of politics that was extremely um, top-heavy in the sense that it was um, using government uh, to provide advantage to national champion businesses that would be given kind of monopoly power and access to government funding and bonds and all these other things right. to build power, but at the expense of allowing you know, newcomers or little guys to get a leg up and kind of unleash sort of the sort of dynamism that we, that we you know, associate with kind of the American economy of later times. So then should we talk more about what really happened? Obviously, we all know about the duel, right? Yep. So we have the duel. And then what may or may not be known is that eventually Burr goes from being vice president to eating out yep. of trash cans in Paris. <laughs> yeah. Like, should we fill in some of the gaps there? Yeah. How we we're, got we're there and why about, that's important? Well, why <laughs> why Burr did not come down to us as a symbol that could be rediscovered by, you know, by the New Dealers or, or, right. or later generations. Like, why why did Burr become this toxic figure? What what happened? So the, the duel is the one thing that most people know about Burr and his life. They may not know exactly how the duel came about or what happened or what the context was. So let's, let's quickly yeah. touch that. Um, Burr was the vice president. So, so you may or may not know that the way Jefferson won the election of 1800, and I think we may have touched on some of this in the first podcast, 
was that Burr did some was he developed the first modern political campaign. Yes. Um, Which, by the way, y'all should go back and listen to the first podcast because it's a the best part of the whole story. Yeah, is that very part right there. So um, Burr is Jefferson's vice president, and they had this deal where Burr is going to succeed, succeed him in power. Jefferson has no interest in that happening because. Um, First of all, he's got loyalty to, to his Virginia colleagues, Madison and Monroe and, and so on. But I think more importantly, there's a, a real difference in political philosophy where Jefferson, you know, believes in agrarianism and, um, and small central government and local autonomy, where Burr at the end of the day believes that, that the future of America, so, I mean, it's similar to Hamilton that way, believes the future of America is, is, is in a mercantile economy, in a, in a manufacturing right. economy. Different only in that they want to change the way the rules are, are written so that small guys can get their share as well. So there's this difference in political philosophy. Burr's the vice president, but Jefferson pretty quickly decides he doesn't want Burr to succeed him. So he uses the patronage power that he's got as the president to undercut Burr's political position among his power base in New York. He sees that New York then as now as a cesspool of local politics. And he gives patronage to the Clintons, DeWitt Clinton, who's a kind of a young, uh, you know, whippersnapper, the nephew of George Clinton, the, the, the longtime governor of New York. And Burr's power base is weakened. Jefferson then employs a bunch of, you know, yellow journalists to write increasingly outrageous stories about Burr. And this is how we get the Lothario stuff that Burr is, you know, out there seducing women and ruining maidens and all this, all this kind of made up stuff. But just Burr has to spend all his time filing lawsuits and fighting against and playing defense. And Jefferson is secretly pulling the strings for, for using the, and using the federal purse to, to, to undercut his vice president. Um, Jefferson wins um, and gets Burr kicked off the ticket for reelection in 1804. So, so Burr knows he's not going to be the vice president anymore in 1805. So he goes back to New York and says, well, I've got a, my finances are in dire shape as all these guys finances always were. There was a big, uh, it was a, a land, bubble blow up that happened right around that time. And so these guys were all like drowning in debt, Hamilton and Burr and Jefferson. And uh, some of them were winding up in jail, but they were all, they were all in like headed for debtor's prison. So Burr's like, Oh, I've got, I've got to go rescue my fortune. He sells off his big mansion and he's running for governor in New York, but he can't run for governor under Jefferson's political party anymore because Jefferson has made that impossible. So, but he's a tremendously po you know, popular figure in his home state. So he gets the nomination of the Federalist party, which is Hamilton's party. Uh, Hamilton, who's back in New York now and is living in semi-retirement after Washington's and death. And that was Philip Schuyler's seat that he took? He did take yeah. Philip Schuyler's Wow, look at you. I know. Uh, set his seat. And so this, this, <laughs> like, this was, had triggered what had been a, a pretty nice friendship between Hamilton and Burr into one of enmity. Burr comes back and gets nominated uh, for governor in Hamilton's political party. It's humiliation for Hamilton, who's been kind of on the outs anyway since – he was kind of undercut by Adams and kind of uh, seen for trying to undermine Adams' presidency. He doesn't have Washington to protect him anymore. He's deeply in debt. He's still reeling from the Maria Reynolds scandal where he was having this affair, but there was also these payoffs and the money might have come from the Treasury. And anyway, right. Hamilton is Hamilton is back on his heels and he's politically not what he was. And he's, you know, maybe depressed, maybe suicidal. But um, one thing he doesn't want to see is – Hamilton doesn't want to see Burr. He doesn't want to see Burr right. as the governor. Right, of uh, in, course. In his not. home state from Under Hamilton's his party. own party. Yeah. Right. So the election proceeds, Burr loses, but in the course of it, 
it comes to Burr's attention that some of the things that Hamilton's been saying them get printed in the newspaper. And among them is um, this, this uh, despicable acts that Burr has supposedly committed. And, and the, the, the rumor, the buzz are between the lines, in addition to the fact that, that Hamilton's explicitly accused him of, you know, sexual deviancy of all sorts of you know, anything you could imagine, either, um, you know, homosexual or interracial or, or you know, and then and he expands that into um, incest in that, that Burr has potentially had incestuous relations with his daughter, his only daughter and, and his closest political confidant, Theodosia. Burr reacts to this, as you might expect, and sends Hamilton a challenge letter and in the in the parlance of the day there was still this dual system this code duello where some people who were self-styled gentlemen would have this agreement that you know they couldn't their, their reputations would be ruined if other people slandered them publicly in certain ways and it's funny certain certain slanders were okay but others weren't and right. this was the type that wasn't quite okay and so burr sends off a challenge letter saying demanding to know you know demanding satisfaction or demanding an apology or a retraction of these things that he's supposedly said about Burr. Hamilton, instead of delivering the apology that would have been sort of the standard to do in the in the day, decides to play coy a little bit and say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. You're going to have to be more specific about, you know, which of the things that exactly right. are. And Burr, who's probably not in the greatest state of mind either, loses cool and says, well, that's it. You know, we're going to have a duel. And then the, the tempers flare and um, and they followed through with a duel. They they rowed their little boats over across the Hudson River over to the dueling grounds in Weehawken because dueling's illegal in New York, but not illegal in New Jersey. Right. Crowned upon, but not illegal. So they rowed their little boats across and, you know, it's a very formal thing. They have seconds and they have pistols and they have, you know, 10 paces and they turn and they shoot. And much to everyone's shock because these duels usually have, you know, these guns were terrible and they weren't that accurate. You would take a shot and you usually miss or you maybe you'd, you'd graze someone. Hamilton uh, apparently is struck in the vital organs uh, and dies. Um, and so they row him back across the, the water to get it to a doctor in New York. And, you know, for three days he lingers and they don't save him and, uh, and Hamilton dies. Burr is still the vice president at this point. He hasn't had the election of 1804 hasn't happened yet. Uh, this is still, you know, months before he's going to be out of office. Jefferson seeing an opportunity to be rid of Burr once and for all has his allies call for, uh, you know, to, for Burr to be arrested uh, and charged so that he hasn't committed a crime in New York. Uh, so Burr sneaks off under cover of darkness, takes a boat and flees across New Jersey, not knowing how he's going to be received. Gets back to Washington, uh, where he's theoretically the vice president. And instead of being arrested, he's, he's, uh, he's given a hero's welcome. Because apparently Hamilton's outworn his welcome with just about everybody. And outside of um, the political show trial that, that Jefferson was trying to enable, Burr was uh, was kind of feted and was welcomed back to the as the leader of the Senate, um, and even Jefferson kind of recognizing the reality, pulls Burr back into his orbit and uses him to uh, for his own political purposes. So Burr's back from the ultimate cancel. Yeah, he's, uh, <laughs> Burr is uh, in, in certain parts of the country. Burr goes on like a world tour. He goes to the South and finds that he's celebrated everywhere he goes. He goes to the West and finds they're having celebrations and parties because there's no bigger enemy to the Southern and Western landholders than the ultimate banker and restrictor of credit, um, Alexander Hamilton. Right, of course. So Burr, in the course of this, gets a big idea that, well, maybe his political fortunes are done in New York and he's not going to be the president, he's not going to be the governor of New York. 
but maybe he can go out west and and be a political hero then. He is given an opportunity to get a Senate seat in one of the new states, either you know Tennessee or Ohio. He turns that down and says, no, no, I've got a better plan. We're going to form an army and we're going to go and invade Mexico because there's hostilities with Spain that are going on and there's border incursions. And everybody I talk to in the West, their biggest enemy is the Spanish because they won't give us the right to the trade routes down the Mississippi and they're, um, they're, they're cutting off, you know, commerce and our ability to, to do things. So Burr being Burr decides he's going to do it right. He gets the commanding general of the U.S. Army, Jamie Wilkinson, to be his second in command is like a moonlight shift when he's not, you know, commanding the force of the United States Army. He gets Andrew Jackson, uh, who's, uh, you know, a political hero and, and the kind of the founder of Tennessee to be a, a, a general in his army. He gets William Henry Harrison, who's a big Indian killer for the future president from the Indiana Territory, to sign up in his army. He gets uh, Henry Clay involved. I mean, it's a who's who of, wow. of early 19th century, you know, political military figures all sign up to be part of Burr's. This like private Burr's army. private army. And Burr, in the course of this, goes back to Washington and tells Jefferson what he's up to. And Jefferson apparently gives him the okay and says, well, you know, you're going to do this. Be swift and be successful. So off Burr goes in his, in his flat boats, you know, sailing down the Ohio River and, and forming up his army with this idea that uh, James Wilkinson and the, and the U.S. Army is going to meet him down there and they're going to they're going to drive the Spaniards back out of Mexico City and you know, the ocean. And then so, Burr has this idea he'll set himself up as the emperor of Spain or perhaps his daughter, Theodosia, will be the empress of, of Mexico. Right. <laughs> so uh, what happens next? It turns out that he does not become the emperor of Mexico. Yeah, I knew, and I knew in, that instead, part. Instead, <laughs> uh, instead, somewhere along the line, Wilkinson, who is um, we learn is a double agent working for the Spanish government, while he's the commanding general of the U.S. Armed Forces, wow. and also working as Burr's number two, tells the uh, the Spanish viceroy in Mexico about Burr's plans to invade, gets paid off, and tells him that you better do something quick. So the Spanish viceroy sends a letter to Jefferson agreeing to no more territorial incursions uh, and to backs off the hostilities of war and makes peace with Jefferson. Jefferson, seeing this, seeing that he's no longer going to have to go to war with Spain or in, and maybe have a way to get rid of right. Burr, turns around and acts shocked at what Burr is doing, has him arrested for treason and hauled back to Washington in leg irons with the idea that his real purpose in founding this army was to break off the Western states and potentially even to, to come to Washington and throw Jefferson in the Potomac and take over himself. Goodness. So Jefferson, so, so Burr, who's now no longer the vice president, but only about a year out of the vice presidency is, is now charged is, with is, treason, is locked up in char in, in, in Virginia, which is Jefferson's home state in Richmond, uh, is going to be tried for um, for for overthrowing the government. Uh, John Marshall, who was the chief justice, who was the, also the presiding judge of the trial, Jefferson prosecuted himself through his son-in-law George Hay. He was the uh, he was the attorney, and and Burr defended himself with the help of Henry Clay and Luther Martin. And right, because Burr, as a reminder, was, was a the, lawyer. Was, was by the preeminent lawyer of yeah. his generation uh, and law partner to Alexander Hamilton. So the trial happens. And Burr manages to acquit himself in a fascinating way that's still reenacted every year by the American Bar Association. They really? The trial. the trial is significant because it defined forever what treason means in the context of America. Wow. And so wait, go on. The idea is that in England, if you said the king is a fink, you can get arrested for treason uh, because the, the man himself was the embodiment of the office. But in America- 
So goes the reasoning from Justice Marshall. It's the office, not the person. So in order for it to be treason, something you say, particularly say about a person, means nothing. It has to be an overt act against the government itself, not against the person. So as Marshall defines treason, Jefferson cannot come up with an overt act. He's He's got these people together for a purpose, and right. supposedly people saw him drilling out on Blennerhassett Island on the Ohio River, but there is no overt act in the face of two witnesses. So in a directed verdict, somehow, 12 jurors who were as happy as could be to to convict Burr are forced by Marshall to let him free. Unbelievable. So he's free. He's free, but Jefferson has said, well, there's 15 right. more states, and I'm going to try on each every one until yeah. I get the verdict I want. Burr, knowing a good moment when he sees one, adopts a disguise and hops aboard a boat headed for England and disappears from the country and goes into exile. Next back? The next four years. Yeah. He's, uh, because this is the olden times and only like 12 people in the world, his best <laughs> friend turns out to be Jeremy Bentham, the founder of utilitarianism, political philosophy. And Bentham hosts Burr and salons and various things and has a grand old time this living in exile for about 18 months until the War of 1812 comes up. And then the British government says, you know, you're a prominent American uh, government official and military figure. You got to get the hell out of the country. Beat it. Burr flees, spends a short time in Sweden, goes to Germany. He's like, uh, he's budding up with Goethe in the, uh, in, in the Hanoverian, uh, wilderness. And, uh, you know, Goethe gets sick of him. And then the next thing we hear from Burr, he winds up in Paris. He decides he's going to go ask Napoleon if he can help him with his of old plan to invade Mexico. Who else would you ask? I mean, yeah, at this yeah. point, yeah. Yeah. Napoleon, <laughs> um, is a bit suspicious and Talleyrand tells him that, that Burr is the guy that killed Hamilton, and Hamilton was a great friend to the French. And so Napoleon doesn't know what to do with Burr, so he places him under more or less house arrest, doesn't let him leave, doesn't arrest him, but leaves him without resources. So Burr, running out of money in 1813 or so, is living penniless off the charity of prostitutes whom he's befriended, uh, eating out of trash cans. Uh, he sold I mean, all his this, possessions. And <laughs> if you could like chart this stock, it would be the most <laughs> volatile security that's ever been. So, okay. So, so he's and, living and off and the So he's lived off the kindest prostitutes on the streets of Paris. Eventually, there's an intercession. Madison is the president. Uh, Dolly Madison is Burr's closest friend or one of his closest friends. Um, Burr has, Burr introduced Madison to his wife. Um, and, wow. uh, Madison, and Dolly Madison says, can't you let this guy come back? And he, you know, gives him a conditional visa to return. Burr doesn't really trust in it. So he comes back in disguise and the boat arrives in Boston. Burr jumps off into the Boston Harbor and swims ashore and hides out in, in the woods, not knowing how he's going to be received. Yeah. I mean, trust issues seem warranted at this point for a homeboy. I, I feel the same. I too would jump off and yeah. swim. He shows up back in New York, you know, a few months later. He's managed to squirrel his way back in. He finds a lot of his old supporters and finds that they've all moved on and the world has kind of forgotten about Aaron Burr. And they, yeah. They I mean, this is concerns. years later. How- this is some years later and America moves fast. Burr reestablishes himself as a uh, as as a lawyer. He's no longer allowed to do politics, but he does. Although his his perhaps illegitimate son Martin Van Buren somehow ascends to the presidency, but story for another day. But uh, yeah, wait, that's a curveball. We didn't talk about that in the warm up uh, act. We, <laughs> wow, maybe for maybe that'll be next year's podcast. But, yeah, uh, but Burr established himself as an attorney and essentially invents the practice we come to know as family law. 
Burr was a proto-feminist, had bought the rights to and published and distributed the Vindication of the Rights of Women by Mary Wollstonecraft and, and uh, decides that women's rights in America through abandonment and divorce, their, their rights to hold property and, and, and win it in court are lacking and the you know, rights of children. Similarly, he decides he's going to specialize in family law uh, inheritance. He's the and first feminist. He's, and he spends 25 years in that role. Um, as kind of the the friend um, of the friendless, it's a whole other lifetime. Yeah, but anyway, that's that's a brief history on why Burr is perhaps not accessible to um, a later period as a political Should symbol. Should we put Burr on the Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> that B is actually that's what that stands for. It's, right? Yeah. 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 Just kidding. We obviously don't have the choice over what to put on Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. In case anyone thought we did. Wow, that is so many plot twists. There, that's a fascinating story, Andy. Yeah. So, what would you leave us with? Where Where should we go? Well, where Where would you like me to tie up the threads? I feel like we opened a lot of boxes and didn't. Um, yeah, I I mean I I'm not sure there's a, a neat way to tie up that gift. Yeah, there's a lot the, of the, um, the, small pieces the, there. The, the relevance to today, perhaps yeah. the uh, the idea of um, the power of political symbols and the searching back into history and kind of recreating them and repurposing them for different uses. And I, I think the idea that Hamilton is, has been uh, rehabilitated as a symbol of unity and unification, which is, you know, couldn't be further from who he was. Jefferson has been repurposed as a symbol of liberty and autonomy and has been captured for a, a lot of purposes. And Burr as a symbol, as we've learned more and, you know, in Burr's own Lifetime, or for 200 years after he was, a, he was a, an untouchable. But in the recent, you know, last decade or two, I think people have rediscovered, you know, Burr as a political philosopher, Burr as somebody who was a um, early believer in the small mercantile businessman and the, the, the dynamism that comes from, you know, from beneath. And Burr is, you know, uh, I think as as we've kind of looked at and rewritten the history of who he really was and what he really did. Is there's an available symbol there for somebody who wants to make a Netflix miniseries to find this guy and use him for the for the good. These were all flawed figures in certain ways. They all right. they all did things that, by, by our you know present standards, were unacceptable. But they also kind of made us into who we are. And a big part of who we are as a people was the political philosophy of, of Aaron Burr. Wow, that was beautiful. I'm not going to say anything else because I'll just tarnish that message because that is a wonderful way to end. Thank you, Andy, so much. These are fascinating. I think everyone who listens to this is just completely shocked by how much is going on in that that mind of yours. I mean, granted, your head is a, a little extra size. Oversized. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but you have a capacity for history that is so beautiful and so fun to listen to. So we thank you so much. And we'll look forward to next year. We'd love to hear any feedback and what the family's conversations think about this as you bring it up on your family holiday dinners. And we'll look forward to this installment next year. Same time next year, Dan. Yes. Andy, thank you so much. And we'll talk later. Bye. Boxes and Lines is a podcast from IEX Exchange. It is hosted by Ronan Ryan and John Ramsey. Executive produced by Daisy Clace with support from Benstown. For more information and to hear more episodes, go to iexexchange.io slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Boxes and Lines. 
The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group Incorporated and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversation may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group Incorporated, all rights reserved. Thank you.